Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Hey, if you weren't here for the introduction just a little while ago, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to see you guys this morning. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet or you don't know anything about me and, and my story, um, before I was a pastor and a lot of years before that, I, I served in the United States Marine Corps, which has proven really valuable to me in lots of ways, but specifically as it pertains to my role as a pastor because I have limitless illustrations for sermons based on things that I participated in or got to experience during my time in the Marine Corps. Um, one of the things that, that I got to experience, one of the things that, that I was taught uh, at, at boot camp and beyond was, was hand-to-hand combat. Right, so if you're not familiar with Marines, our, our training is pretty extensive and pretty, pretty brutal. Um, and, and they teach us all how to, to fight with our hands because in wartime situations, if you're out of bullets and everything else, then you got to fight with your hands or whatever. So they teach us this stuff. The form of training that, that I learned at boot camp was called, was called LINE. That was, the, that was the acronym for the type of hand-to-hand combat training that, that I had to learn. It stands for Linear Infighting Neural Override Engagement, in case you were ever curious what that was. So, um, so how that works is, is the idea is that if you can cause enough pain to one particular part of the body of your opponent, then everything else shuts down and you pretty much have your way with them. But there are a couple of characteristics. I, I, put, I, just, I put a little note here in, in my notes um, about some of the – I looked this up on, online – as to the requirements for what line training had to teach you, right? Here's what, it has, here's what line training had to be in order for the Marine Corps to adopt it as its official type of hand-to-hand combat training. All techniques must not be vision dominant. Techniques may be executed effectively in low light conditions or other impaired visibility conditions as such like smoke or, or gas. All techniques must be able to be performed during extreme mental and physical fatigue. And they tested that extensively. It must be usable by the Marine while wearing full combat gear. And this is the one that I want to to, to key in on. Proper execution of the technique must result in death of your opponent. Death. Like where they die. Where their life no longer exists. What I found really funny, this is, this is funny. Um, while I was in the Marine Corps, from time to time, my buddies and I, we'd hang out at, at, at clubs or at, at a bar sometimes. And, and you, always had, you always had these tough guys, right? They wanted to test themselves against the big bad Marines. They wanted to test themselves. And so they'd come up and just, just to start stuff, just come up and start it out of nothing. Like we're just there enjoying ourselves, having a good time. And they want to come up and start talking some noise and try to get in a fight. And here's the thing. The fighting that we were taught how to do, if we execute it properly, would end in your death. Your death. We were trained to kill you, and you really want to start some stuff. It was, we fought them anyway. We didn't kill them. We didn't kill them. We, we just fought them anyway. Like we, no, nobody ever died that I know of. Uh, anyway, so now, now here's the reason that I tell you that story. Because we've been walking through the book of Colossians over the last four weeks together. And in just a moment, in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul is going to command us to commit murder. He's going to command us to kill something. 
And, and what I know from my training in the Marine Corps is that if you are going to take the life out of something, it requires an incredible amount of intensity, of passion, of anger, of hate. You got to hate what you're fighting in order for you to fight with an intensity that would result in death. <laughs> Every time I say death, I feel like I got to make a sound effect because I'm kind of animated. Anyway, um, so Colossians chapter 3, I'm, I'm going to back us up into verse 1 and read us down to verse 5 just to give us some context. We talked about a lot of this stuff last week. Paul says, since then... You have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here, here's, here's verse 5, you ready? Put to death. <laughs> Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, Paul is commanding us here to commit murder, but not murder of another. Of course, Paul wasn't going to tell us we were supposed to kill other people. But Paul here says that the earthly things that are in you, the things that are dishonoring to God and outside of his will and outside of his directives and outside of the way that God has, has designed your life to work, that those things should be put to death. See, I, I believe, according to what, what Paul says here and according to the other texts in Scripture, that in the life of of a Christ follower should have an intensity towards the eradication of sin that, that I, just don't, I just don't see quite often in my Christian brothers and sisters. That there should be such an intensity about my, my desire to, to murder the sin out of my life, like to completely put it to death. And, and again, coming from that background of this combat training stuff, I know what kind of intensity it takes to kill something. And Paul says, that's how we should go about trying to get rid of the sin in our life. That there should be an intensity, a passionate hatred of the things that are earthly within us. To the point where we feel like killing it. Look, all of us. All of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned. All of us continue to sin. And for most of us, that's an extremely frustrating reality. That, that the earthly part of us that still lives, as we're being continually molded and, and, and created and, and born into the, the, the image of our Savior Jesus, as we're continuing to, to mold our lives more after the example that he set and the commands that he gave, the more that we're, we're doing that better and better and better and better, the more frustrated I am with the parts of me that are still earthly and, and, and fleshly and, and sinful. You know, Paul in Romans said, like, the things that I want to do, these, these godly things I do not do, and the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that, that I still do. And you can, you can hear his frustration in that. And I think for a lot of us, we experience that same 
kind of frustration as we try to look and act and behave and, and live as much like Jesus as we can, yet we're still continually pulled back into the things of our former life before Christ. And then Paul says that, that we're hidden in Christ, covered by Christ, becoming more like Christ, but we're still in process, and it's, it's frustrating. For some of us, though, we've bought into what I believe to be this, this Bible Belt theology, this, this Bible Belt misconception that as long as I can control my external behavior, as long as I can manage the way that I behave, as long as I can manage the things that are outside of me, as long as nobody else knows that I'm sinning, then I've somehow set myself free from the power of sin. And, and that's just not true because sin, and we talked about this last week, right, that it's more about what is inside of us than is what is outside of us. Proverbs would tell us that the heart is deceitfully wicked, above all things, that, that, that there is a sin that is still in us. And as much as we should be trying to control our external behavior, we should be trying to kill and murder the sin that is of our internal thought and mind. So this is the, the big idea that, that I'll use to, to, to kind of set up the rest of our time together today. If you want to write this down, it's going to be a great note to take. We need to stop trying to control your sin and start trying to murder it. I was going to go with kill. Like you should try to kill it. But murder sounds so much more intense. And that's the idea that I believe Paul is trying to get across to us here. That there should be an intensity about us. As we try to remove the things from our life. That it's not something that's to be controlled or managed or tamed or overseen. But we should be trying to eradicate it completely from our life. Back in the, the late 90s, there was a pretty popular TV show. It was called When Animals Attack. It don't come on anymore. I'm sure PETA had something to do with that. But there's, it don't come on anymore. But, but on this show, they would always show these videos where animals that were predators and their nature is to attack and to kill and eat and devour. They would show these videos of animals doing exactly what they were designed and created and is in their nature to do, and everybody acts all surprised. Like, oh, I can't believe it attacked us. And the, the ones that got me the most were the ones where it were like the, the circus animals or the show animals or whatever, like the, the Siegfried and Roy White Tiger. And there was this one I remember where there was like this, like this bikini model, right? And they brought her out and they put her on a lion. And in the video... Because the show's called When Animals Attack, guess what happened? He attacked her. And I'm like, oh, everybody's like, I can't believe it. He's never done it before. He was completely tamed and, 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 and taught and obedient. He's never done this. This is an apex predator. He's doing exactly what he was designed. You laid food on him. Listen, listen. You put a Snickers bar up here. Maybe I eat it, maybe I don't. I'm not hungry right now. Just had a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. Like, I, I'm, like I'm good. But eventually, eventually, I'm going to eat that Snickers bar. Like, I'm going to eat it. What, it's, the time is going to come. That's, like, I feel like I was designed to eat Snickers. Like, that's kind of like, that's, that's, in my, that's in my person, right? I love a Snickers bar. You lay one of them, I'm going to eat it eventually. Like, they laid food on a lion and then got surprised when a lion did what a lion's supposed to do. Sin is the same way. 
sin. Not by design by our, our father, but by design of our enemy. It's designed to pull you away from the things that are, that, that is its design. And when we try to control, tame, manage, oversee, just make sure I know it doesn't get out too far and it's not too noticeable and nobody really knows what's going on inside of me, as long as I can manage, as long as I can tame it, then everything's okay. It's not. It's not. You've heard me say from this stage a bunch of times, if you've been here for any amount of time at all, that sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. That's the nature of sin. And in the same way that it is the nature of a lion to eat people, sin will devour you. It was not meant to be controlled. So stop trying to control it. Start trying to murder it. There should be an intensity about your eradication from sin in your life. D.A. Carson in the book For the Love of God said this about sin. He said, people do not drift toward Holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. Because we do not drift towards the things that honor our Heavenly Father, we have to be that much more intentional about killing the things that are dishonoring to him. Because if we, are, if we tend to drift towards the things that are dangerous for us, it would be a lot better if they were dead when we get there. So here's what Paul's going to say next. He's going to give us a list. Actually, two lists. We'll cover both. But he's going to start with this first list at the end of verse 5 that says this. Paul says, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, here's the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, these things sound very similar in nature, so I wanted to see if I could kind of clear up the list a little bit to, to create some distinction between each of these things in the list. So Paul starts with sexual immorality. And again, I always feel like I have to say this because we're in the Bible Belt. Um, sex was God's idea. Like he came up with this idea. It's not, it's not bad, it's not dirty, and it's not ugly. I feel like there, there are a lot of us or some of us in the room that grew up in a, in a very legalistic or, or fundamental type upbringing in church where we were taught that sex was bad. You don't talk about it. You don't even do it. Like, you, you never, never like, even if you're married, like, you don't, you just, just, like, don't, just don't let anybody else. And everybody's got kids and like, well, where'd they come from? Like, they, like we, we, we've been sold, uh, sex is a good thing. We've been sold a lie. Right? Again, a lot of us, from inside the church. I feel like a church has done a disservice. Right? We tell our, our young Christian girls, like, sex is bad, don't do it. Like, stay away from it. It's evil, it's horrible. And it's like, don't, 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 and then get married. And it's like, go. Right? It's like, gross, 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 go. And that's a really quick downshift. You know what I mean? 
So uh, here's what I'd love for us to do as a church is kind of reclaim this idea where we teach this as the beautiful thing that it is that God has put some parameters around for our blessing. Because there is a way that God wants us to handle sexuality and there's a way that he tells us is, is dangerous for us. Not just dangerous for us, but for others and for our souls. God would tell us later in Scripture that, 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 that participating in sexual immorality damages your soul. It damages the inside of you. That it does something on a, on a level that we can't even understand. That's why it's, it's very dangerous. But it's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Like God created Adam and Eve naked in the garden and then told them to be fruitful and multiply. How does that happen? Sex is how that happens. It's an awesome and beautiful. It was God's idea. He's not against it. It's an awesome. And one, we don't get closed until Genesis chapter 3. And that's only as a result of the fall. Like that's after sin that we have to start wearing clothes. You can thank Adam and Eve for this. Like we just walk. Anyway, that's another conversation for another day. Like it's, it's a beautiful thing. But, but there are parameters around it designed for, for procreation and for our pleasure, but within the bounds that God has set according to his design. Next, Paul says impurity. And oftentimes this idea of, of purity gets lumped in to the sexual morality conversation, and it is part of the sexuality conversation. But, but impurity refers to things every, all across facets of Creation, because the idea of impurity, follow me, is if you take something pure and make it not pure. That's, that's impurity. So this could refer to anything within creation. It does refer to sexual immorality, this wonderful, beautiful gift that we've been given by God when we take it and we treat it irresponsibly, operate in sexual, sexuality outside of the bounds that God has designed. We take this beautiful, pure, and wonderful thing, gift that God has given us, and we defile it. We make it Impure, but this doesn't just relate to sex. Anything. Like the, the famous uh, sermon illustration from back in the 80s and 90s when pastors wanted to teach on impurity was if I baked a whole pan full of brownies and I put just a little bit of poop in, would you still eat it? Right? This is like if, if you go to like how to find sermon illustrations, what it, that's like it's in the, it's, this is one of the quintessential like sermon illustrations for purity, right? Yeah, I, like you never heard it before. I should have just said it like I came up with that. Anyway, but, but you wouldn't eat it. Why? Because the whole pan has been defiled by just a, just a little bit. That's the idea about purity and impurity. That something that, is, that was perfect is now defiled. Let me give you a couple illustrations. Um, food, all right? Food created by God for sustenance so, so that we can be strengthened and, and, and sustained so that we can worship, so that we can express gratitude, so that we can participate in our vocation. Like God has given us food for, that's good for the body. But at some point along the way, we figured out that food can make us feel good when we feel bad. And we've turned food into a drug where we need 17 cups of coffee just to make it through the day and we live off of caffeine and sugar. And this thing that God has created for goodness that we might be able to participate in the things that bring him honor and glory, we instead treat food like a substance that we use to make ourselves feel good. So instead of turning to the Father for security and for him to, to fill us and to sustain us and to make us appreciate and be content in what we have, we, we turn to a substance. To a substance. We treat food like a drug. Another illustration, money. Money is amoral. Not immoral, it's amoral. It means it has no morality. 
And again, a gift from God. The, the scriptures tell us that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is. When our love for money supersedes our love for God, we've gotten our, our priorities out of place. And that's when money becomes evil. We've taken this good and wonderful gift that God has given us, again, to provide for us and for our enjoyment. And we've defiled it by using it for things that, that are selfish in nature or greedy in nature or, or things that are counter to our, our dependence on God for things. And, and then money becomes our God instead of God himself. That's, that would be an impure treatment of money. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Um, if every time you receive a raise is that key for now we can upgrade, let me ask it a different way. Have you in your family or you as an individual ever had the, here's the line for enough conversation. Where like once we get to here, like we're good. Like we, we don't need to upgrade anymore. That we, We've got it. Like this is, once we, once we arrive here, everything after that is let's just fund the kingdom. Let's just participate in what God is doing in the earth and through his kingdom. Like let's just, let's just give back to it. Let's invest in it. Like once we get here, we're good. We no longer need to upgrade. Or, or if every time you get a raise, it's like, oh, praise God, now we can upgrade. And, and, and the goal is not enough. The goal is more. You see the difference? That's when money becomes a God in and to itself because you end up chasing the same thing that the world is chasing. And we take money, this beautiful, wonderful thing that God has given to us to, to provide for ourselves and for our families, and we make, it, we, we make it an evil, impure thing by the way that we handle it. So again, impurity refers to anything in the creative order. Next, Paul adds to the list lust. Again, typically associated with sexuality, but lust in this context is just a desire for things that we want regardless of the ramifications of them. I see it, I want it, I go get it. What, forget the consequences, who cares? That's lust, right? It's just in, as a, an unhealthy desire for things that I, maybe are not what's best for me. That's lust defined. Next, Paul says evil Desires. Here's where Paul's talking about the internal, right? This is your thought life. The things that are inside of you, not outside of you. Really hard to get people to admit having evil desires. Like I've never talked to somebody like, hey, you know, tell me what's going on. Like sit down for counseling. Like, hey, what's going on? Pastor Brian, I have some evil desires. Never had that come out of anybody's mouth. Like it just doesn't happen, right? But I would be willing to bet that nobody here would be okay with having all of their public thoughts expressed publicly. Am I right? None, none of us wants everybody else to know the things that are inside of our head. Why? Because there's some evil in there still that God wants to eradicate and get out of our lives. Paul rounds out his list with greed, which is idolatry. And here again, this is, this is really close to that impurity idea. It's a desire for the things that are beyond what, I, what is enough for me. It's looking, for, it's looking for more when Christ desires to be what is sufficient. It's wanting more for me when there are others who could benefit from the excess. It's greed. Paul says we are to put things like this to death. And then he tells us why, which is pretty important. Verse 6. Because of these, 
the wrath of God is coming. That's a, this is a fun sermon for people like me, right? The wrath, uh, I feel like I need to do the voice again, right? Like, the wrath of God is coming. Let's all do it together. Ah, ah, no, let's not do it together. See, nobody likes to talk about God's wrath. We love to talk about God's beauty and his holiness and how he's loving and he's perfect. And he's just, he's all good and he's awesome. Those are the feel-good sermons. Those are, those are the ones everybody loves to hear. But here's what I want you to see. God's perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, and his lovingness are inseparably connected to his wrath. Because he is holy, he wants absolutely nothing to do with anything that would threaten perfection. I mean, quick show of hands, no embarrassment here. I'm going to raise my hand because it's true for me. How many of you suffer on any level from what would commonly be known as OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder? How many of you, like something out of place just freaks you out, or you might want to avert your eyes because I'm going to show some pictures. All right, so can we put those up, number one? Let's, all right, can y'all see that? Kevin and I were having a conversation this morning where I told him, like, stuff like this, it affects me physically. Like, I, I want to, all right, next, next picture. Come on. Can y'all see the blue one? You see the blue one? In, like, it's, oh, it's just, ugh. All right, next. This is killing me. Come on, man. Like, it's just, it. Right? All right, next. Right? Like, how does that, I'm sure that happens by a machine, but dang. All right, and then next, like, come on. See, at this point, at this point, the OCD person is locked up. I don't know what to do. I can click it one more time to get the $35, but then my gallons get like, oh, God, this would, this, this, I just, I leave my car there. Like, I don't even know what to do. I'm going to walk home. I'm not, I ain't, I ain't doing nothing with it. Now, do you know why pictures like this bother people with OCD so much? Because almost perfect is the furthest thing in the world away from perfect. We tracking? God is completely perfect and righteous and holy. And anything, even the smallest fraction of disobedience and sin is counter and offensive and disgusting to his righteousness. That is why God's wrath is completely and connected to and inseparable from his holiness. Because he is holy, he has to be wrathful towards things that are outside of perfection. Now, a couple of things, because I want to make this very clear. God does not hate you if you sin, if you are in him. Uh, uh, Psalm 103 says that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and Romans 5 say that as believers we are not under wrath but under God's Mercy. That simply means that if you are a believer in Christ and bad or difficult things happen in your life, somehow, whether you are able to identify it or not, that is God's mercy to you. That is not God's wrath. It may be God's correcting of you. 
God will discipline, the KJV uses the words chasten, like God will, God will discipline and correct you to steer you back onto the path that he has and the design for your life. But that is God's mercy leading you back to his path. That is not God's wrath. Those two things are very, very, very different. Are we good? So for the believer, you are not under God's wrath. You are covered, hidden in Christ. We talked about that last week. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your imperfection. He sees his son who was perfect and sinless. Now, I love verse 7 because Paul here, I think, doesn't want us to forget something. He reminds us, verse 7, you used to walk in these ways. Talking about that list that we just read. In the life you once lived. Now, Paul isn't making this point here, but I'm going to make this point here. Don't be an arrogant Christian. That, that should be an oxymoron. An arrogant Christian. Don't forget where you came from. I don't believe that God would have us to leave, live under the umbrella of guilt for our former mistakes. I believe our enemy would have us to live under that guilt. But that also doesn't give us permission to forget that we are forgiven. And that we have been set free from those things. So that as we look on those who have yet to receive Christ... And yet to fall under the umbrella of grace and the mercy that comes from a relationship with Jesus. I would beg of you that we not look dimly or poorly on those that have yet to receive that. That we would remember that there was a way that we once lived. And that we have now been set free from that and been brought into a relationship with Jesus. Then he goes on. Colossians 3, 8 through 10. He says, but now... You must also rid yourselves of all such things. He's going to give us a second list as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul uses this imagery a lot, the, the, the taking off of old things to put on the newness of Christ. Paul does this regularly. A couple, just one thing to point out about these two lists. The first list that we read, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, all of those things are things that are inside of us. Those are internal things that we battle with and that we struggle with. And Paul says we should murder those things. And likewise, we should take off, and then he gives us this second list, which are all things that have to do with our interactions with other people. And if you think back to what Jesus said in the great commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. So the great commandment summed up is this, love God internally, how you think about, how you present yourself to God with your thought life, with how you live and how you believe and how you're molded into the image of Jesus. Love God first. Love people. Second, the second is like it, that we are to love others in the same way that we love ourselves. Again, here's what Paul is saying. Here's, here's the, the big idea, our whole, the whole content for today. Stop trying to control your sin. Increase the level of intensity within your being that fights feverishly to murder, kill, put to death the things of your, Paul used the word flesh, the, the world, your, your earthly self. 
here's what I would love to see look like the landscape of our church and, and, and Christianity as a whole in the nation of America and beyond is that we would see believers so, with such a, a distaste and disgust for the sin in their lives that they didn't just try to control it and they didn't just try to put on the good face so that they look good to everybody else, but that there was a passionate pursuit of the eradication of sin in their life. Can you imagine what that would look like if we all got serious about that? If we stopped messing around with sin, trying to tame it, and started fighting to kill it? So I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. I, um, I thought about in the sermon, like, well, I, I, really, I probably need to tell people, like, what sin is. Like, we need to go through a list. Paul went through a list. But like, we're moving to talk about what sin is. And this is, this, is where I, this is where I landed. You know. Even if you haven't been a Christian for a long time or you're not a Christian at all, there's a pretty good chance that in your day-to-day life, in your interactions and in the moments of your day, you know what things are and are not honoring to God, don't you? Do your hands like this. You know. You know. Yeah. Well, Pastor, well, I don't really know. What about this deep theological thing? Is it sin if I do this? and sin? You don't need all that. Start with what you know. Start with what you can see and what you know to be right and what you know not to be. A great measuring tool, if you had to hide it from your mama or Jesus, it's probably sin. <laughs> the band's laughing behind me. <laughs> if you got to hide it from your mama or Jesus, it's probably sin. So stop it. And don't just stop it. Kill it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, God, help us to live lives. That, that honor you, that are pleasing to you. God, take away the excuses, the rationalization, all the ways that we, we tend to make light of our sin. God, all the ways that we seek to control it, to tame it, to manage it, to protect our external behavior so that others will think well of us. God, God, help us with those things. We know that they're not honoring to you. We know that they're sin. We know that they're the things that you would have us to run from, yet we somehow embrace. God, we want to live for you. We want our lives to be hidden in the beauty and the majesty of your son, Jesus. So that not only when you look at us, do you see your son. But God, when everybody else looks at us, they see him too. God, that has to be more than external behavior modification. God, that has to start within us. So, Father, search our hearts. Reveal to us any unclean thing within us, God, that would be displeasing to you. Lord, help us to confess that to you, to turn away from those things, God, that would bring dishonor to your name. Help us to live in a way that makes others want to know the God that we believe in and the Son who saved us. It's in his name I pray. Amen.